All right. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Um, when I was praying and, uh, and meditating about uh, tonight and the last, uh, the last thing, kind of a farewell message, and, and if I could only communicate one thing with moms and dads, with parents uh, for this generation, um, I'm going to share with you uh, insights, um, principles, um, teaching that has been laid up inside of me over a number of years as a parent, as a father, um, as, a, as a kid's pastor, and then as a pastor as well. Um, it's, a, it's very heartfelt, um, and this is something that's coming out of, out of my own experience uh, and my own learning, my mistakes, my, my growth as a believer, and just a lot of time at the, at the, at the feet of the Lord. I want to talk to you tonight about impact with your kids. Some of you already have kids out of the nest. Some of you have kids still in the nest. Uh, if you have kids that you've already released from the nest, let me let me assure you of one thing. Tonight is just as much for you as it is for uh, those that, that have kids in, inside the house right now. Psalm 78 and verse 2 says that we will not fail. It's, he says, I, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we've heard from our fathers. And we will not fail to make these things known to their children. It's not talking a father talking about his kids. It's talking about someone else's kids. It's a very interesting psalm because it's talking about legacy. And it's talking about the, the duty and the charge that senior adults have with the next generation. It's not just about fathers and, and moms and so forth. In the house of God, I truly believe, and as I look in the scriptures and, and see it in life experience, I believe that when we think about the next generation and we think about those that do not have father or mother, um, those that have been forsaken, Psalm 2710, David, David said, you know, though father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. I truly believe that one of the ways God takes those up who don't have father or mother influences is through the body of Christ. He gives spiritual fathers and mothers to those that don't have those influences that they were looking for. If you look at the life of Timothy in Scripture, you see someone who had a spiritual father sent into his life in the form of the Apostle Paul to mentor him and take him to the place where God intended him to be. And I believe as we look at the deficit um, that this generation faces, the challenges that they're facing, I don't believe that our children will be adequately prepared just with the parents that they have in their home. They need the previous generation speaking into them as well. And it behooves us within the body of Christ to make those connections and then to find opportunities of ministry to speak in and pass on those things that God has communicated to us in, in that generation. Does that make sense? So I want you to hang on tight. If, if you're in that generation, this is for you. And if, and if you have, have them in the house, this is for you as well. Um, so I want to give you three principles that I've been walking out in my life. Um, at this day, I have a 25-year-old daughter and I have a 21-year-old daughter. So they are out of the house. Um, our oldest, Kadra, has completed her master's work uh, and is working on her fellowship in speech-language pathology. Um, and... It, the story of God bringing her into her calling 
uh, and preparing her for that, the vision that was cast, and, and, and that whole journey was, was amazing in and of itself. And it's no different with, with our youngest, Carlisa. Uh, she's 21, and she is at the uh, University of North Texas working on her undergraduate in special education. Um, so both of them, at a young age, received a vision from God that God began to, to work into their life, uh, and that Rolanda and I, working with those things and recognizing those things, helped groom them into the places where they are now. Um, three specific principles that I want to talk to you tonight, though, are biblical vision, biblical saturation, and biblical discipline. Three pillars. There's several more that I could share with you, but if I had to boil it down to only three that I could share with you, these are the things that I really want to share with you. Biblical vision, biblical saturation, and biblical discipline in the home. And I believe as you apply these principles, as I have in mind, I believe that you can see impact in your kids. In Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, this is what David says. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Whenever the Bible uses parables, whenever the Bible uses simile or metaphor, some type of picture device, there is a big principle that God is trying to communicate with us. God is a picturesque God. He is a God who wants to put you into the driver's seat and get you there because when you get that picture in your mind, when you get that parable in your mind, that application, the more you have it, the more you're able to understand, remember, and apply biblical truth God's big in pictures, and so when he gives us a picture like this in Scripture, there's always powerful teaching that follows it. And he tells us in this psalm, he tells us children are like arrows. They are like arrows. The, the idea that he is communicating here, if you start thinking about an arrow, if you, you know, what it is, you know, what God intends us to see a child as, every child is both a gift and a responsibility. God communicates two things here at first. He says children are a gift, they're a reward from him, but then he says they're arrows, they're, which meaning, oh, okay, an arrow, whoa, then there's some type of responsibility, there's some type of power that these, that the, that these little beings have, and we need to, to get serious about it. I have up here three uh, different hunting arrows. Um, they are for different pound, uh, compound bow pulls. Uh, they are for different types of game. Some are for broad impact, big game. Some are for smaller game. Every child is completely different by their design. Romans eleven twenty nine says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Every child, when they are created by God, has a calling. But the fulfillment of that calling is not automatic. Calling is automatic. It's given with birth. But the fulfillment of calling does not happen by accident. It happens by intentionality as it begins in the home. And God wants us right away in Scripture to get this idea 
that every one of us as parents is both making something and sending something. Everybody's making something. If you have a kid, you've made something. <laughs> and one day when you release that kid, you're going to send something. The question is, is what are you sending? Is it going to be a blessing or will it be a curse? Will it be an asset to society? Will it be a liability? Will that child hit the mark that God destined that wants for that child, intended for that child in his or her creation, or will they not? And we as parents, if the child, if every child is an arrow, think about this, if every child is an arrow, then every parent is a fletcher and an archer. A fletcher is an arrow maker, an archer is an arrow sender. That's what we're constantly doing in our parenting. And there are several observations that you can make about an arrow. An arrow has lethal potentiality. Lethal potentiality. And it has strategic use. An arrow, when it is fired, it can take out one single person in a crowd, or it can set a whole city on fire. Every child has a different calling. As parents, we need to be about dis helping discover that calling, working with them and alongside them and helping them to discover how God intends them to impact the world. Another observation that you can make about an arrow, though, is though it is lethal, though it has fierce purpose, it is also extremely delicate. You hold an arrow light to the touch because it doesn't take much to warp it, to bend it, to break it, or blunt it. Not much at all. They're hard to make. They have to be handled lightly. And they need to be aimed. An arrow is wasted if it is not aimed. You following me? Just laying out some parables, just laying out some vision here at first, and trying to place some pictures in your mind. If there is an arrow, if every child is an arrow, what it also means is that there is a target. There is something that God intends them to hit. Every child has a calling, I said, up front. Every child. What we do as parents in our release can propel them into that calling or it can make them veer from it where God must send others later on to labor and bring that thing back on course to heal what is warped, bent, broken, blunted. We can sharpen at home as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Children are not sharpened. They are not equipped by osmosis. They're not equipped by accident. That happens as fathers and mothers engage with God in the home. One of the greatest deficits that we have, one of the greatest gaps that we experience as spiritual leaders and teachers in the church of God in this age is a gap between the teaching and ministry that we provide here in the church house and then what takes place the other six or five days of the week at home. Children are in school 
six and a half to seven hours at least these days, sometimes nine or ten with extracurricular activities added in. All total, they're experiencing somewhere between 30 to 50 hours of instruction in a public school, secular instruction at that. And if they're not getting any type of training at home, what we provide within the church house is merely a drop in the bucket compared to the gusher that they're getting on a daily basis. The world is washing them and we're shooting them with a squirt gun and saying, here, be filled. Go do, go do your God thing. You with me? So arrows have fierce intentionality. They have fierce purpose. They're, they're delicate. If there is an arrow, what it also implies is that there is an enemy. And one of the things that the Psalms pointed out to us is that children, when they are raised, they are supposed to be able to speak with the enemy at the gate. They are supposed to be able to confront the enemy when their training is complete. They should not be released like a sheep among wolves. And again, that does not happen by accidents. I've served as a college pastor. One of the greatest burdens that I imparted, that I taught about constantly as a college pastor, is that the majority, over 80%, this was a Barna poll, a, st a statistic, that over 80% of children that left home, a Christian home, and went off to a secular college, abandoned their faith. And then... When they were asked why, they began with reason number one. They did not see anything compelling enough in the home to tell them that they should hang on to it. Number two, once they started getting a steady washing of liberal indoctrination, of secular indoctrination, they saw their faith, their former faith, as irrelevant. Because what they thought they were hearing was truth here, and that was a fairy tale there. As parents, it behooves us then to know what we're sending out, to know how we're releasing it, and to be ready to do that. Children have purpose. They have a target. There is an enemy. They have potential. And an arrow, it can have zero impact, it can have surgical impact, it can have magnificent and broad impact. And it depends on who's drawing the bow. That is where it begins. An arrow is only going to fly in accordance with the strength of its draw. If it's a weak draw, if it's a weak relationship at home between parent and child. And when I say weak, let me provide the model of three squares a day and a roof over your head and nothing else. Okay? That's not parenting. That's just provision. Parenting's different than provision. We have to provide something else. And when God began, when he brought children into the world, it began with a family and not a church. The local church is supposed to partner with the parent. And between the two of those oxen, they can pull the cart. Working together. Jesus 
when he looked at Peter following his resurrection in John 21, 15, the first words out of his mouth were, feed my little lambs. Take care of these kids. You feed them first in teaching. So he commanded his coming church and his apostles, his teachers, he commanded them to teach the little ones. Children's ministry is straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. We saw it in his own ministry, of course. But the original ministry began in the home. And nothing has changed with that model. It has to be going on in two places. As fathers specifically, Scripture lays out the, the bulk of the responsibility. That mantle rests upon the father in Scripture. As arrows are in the hand of a gibor, a warrior, a man warrior is what the scripture is identifying there. So are the children of the youth. It's the father who bears that weight and that responsibility and the, res the responsibility of that release. So I said every parent is a fletcher and an archer, a maker and a sender. We talked a little bit about, you know, arrows don't happen by accident. Arrows are crafted. These right here, I have a combination of aluminum and carbon fiber arrows. There are arrows of wood. There are arrows of, of other types of compositions and so forth. But they have to be crafted over time. And the more crafting, the more time you spend with it, the more focus, the better skill, and the more labor that's applied to it, the better the product can be, the better the result can be at the end. When we think about, as parents, what we do with our time on a daily basis, the question becomes what, what time, what quantity of instruction are we devoting for our kids at home and what is the quality of the instruction that they're receiving at home? What are they, what are they getting and receiving from us? So that they become something like that. Versus something that looks like I walked outside and just pulled it off the tree and, you know, slapped it into a bow. There's crafting, there's honing, there's handling, there's drawing, there's aiming, there's releasing. All these things. And this is the picture that God really opens up with us as he starts talking about this. In Philippians uh, 3 and verse 13, Paul says... Forgetting those things which are behind, I reach forth to those things which are before. And verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. I push towards that. When I first read about this scripture, when I first read about this, when I became a Christian at, at 21 and began reading through the Bible, I determined in my heart at that time that when I became a father, that I was going to apply what I saw Holy Spirit showing me. Before both of our daughters were born, this was something that, that I felt God leading me to do. I fasted 40 days for each child to prepare for their birth. I came from a broken home, a busted up home. I had been abused as a child. I had quite a deficit between my rearing at home and between making up that gap and becoming a Christian father, much less a father. And I was, I took it just crazy seriously. And I, I wanted with all my heart to 
raise children in a way that I was not raised. I wanted to raise up a godly seed. I wanted to raise up children that I knew would make their impact and would not have to worry about when they were released, whether or not they're heading in the right direction, whether or not they're moving into their calling, whether or not they know who they are in Christ, whether or not they know what their spiritual gifts are, whether or not they know they're able to face the enemy, whether or not they know whether they're capable of ministering to people. I wanted my kids to be fully equipped and ready for every good work. And so I set about constantly studying the scriptures and preparing myself and in the process of of that preparation as Rolanda was pregnant with our first child the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said go out and buy an arrow and I went okay I, I think I know where you're going but speak on and he said I want you to go to the sporting goods store I'm going to show you the arrow that I want you to buy And I want you to keep this thing constantly before you as a prophetic reminder of what you're doing every day as a father and what you're going to release into the world one day. My children to this day have a special arrow that I purchased before they were born, each one of them. And I had a specially crafted box put together for them. There's dedication scriptures from the time that they were born that are etched onto the glass. There are some prophecies that they had when they were young that are in some of the boxes, some laid up in journals, and so forth. But I wanted a picture in my mind and something that constantly would remind me of what I'm supposed to be doing. And each one of those was decidedly different. This one here is is very much like my oldest child. This is not not hers. Hers is in her box, which is in her room at this very moment. But it's the same type of arrowhead. It's the same, uh, same style of arrow and everything. This one is for big game. This one is, this, this, the, the, hit, the tip on this will split bone. And I knew, and I knew as I was praying for my daughter before she was ever born, I knew that she was going to have speaking gifts. I knew that she was going to have a mouth and wisdom that God would give her to articulate his word. I knew that she was going to be a pioneer. I knew that she was destined for long, hard flight. A myriad of things happened in giving me vision before she was born and then in days after, years and months following, as I would pray, as I would spend time with the Lord, and as I would look back over at that arrow one more time, God would speak something else to me. I encourage you as parents, if you don't have some type of physical reminder in front of you to do something like this. God is is big into those visuals. The second one that he gave me, this is for smaller game. This This is my younger daughter. Kedra is made to speak to crowds. Carlisa is best one on one. There's a complete difference in, in their design. Carlisa's relational by nature. Carlisa loves up close. Carlisa wants to work with special needs ch- children. This type of arrow doesn't work well on big game. It won't do it. But it works well on small game. It works well on short flight. All of those things. There's, an, a, again, a number of illustrations that I could communicate as I, as I look at this and what it speaks to me, to me personally. So that's kind of a visual up front that I want to relate to you. And the thing that I, I want to encourage you about is we study a lot of things as Christians. We study doctrine. We study the end times. We study, you know, you know 
scripture to, to learn this or that. Let me ask you, how much time do you spend studying parenting? There is a huge, there's a huge gap, knowledge gap, with most Christian parents and feeling the sense of feeling equipped and ready for what they're supposed to be doing on a daily basis, but all too often we don't do anything about it. We don't act on that. And we hope to God that when I bring them to church that they're going to get good teaching in another room in the house. When I was raising my daughters, another one of the things that I did specifically was I asked the Lord to give me a set of memory verses that I could begin to teach them that would begin to indoctrinate them with essential truths of the faith, laying out a core set of beliefs. I also went about teaching them as they got older basic apologetics, learning how to defend the faith intelligently and reason with those who do not know Christ and don't think that the Bible is the word of God. I knew... From experience, I knew from the people that I constantly talked to and debated with as a college, you know, as a, as, as a college pastor and all of that, I knew what they were stepping into. I knew that lion's den. And I knew that I'd be sending them as, as sheep among wolves if I didn't prepare them. And so I, I was specific. I went and I studied apologetics. I studied, studied it under a master of apologetics, Dr. Frank Harbour. Uh, for a, a few years at First Baptist Colleyville, years ago. And he took me under his wing. But I read book after book after book after book after book. And I wanted to be able to defend my faith, but I wanted to be able to impart that to my children. And, you know, laid out, was able to lay out for them before they left home four basic pillars of apologetics, which is the existence of God, which is the inspiration of Scripture, being able to defend that the Bible is the Word of God, the deity of Jesus Christ, being able to prove that He is the Son of God without using the Scriptures. And then... The other questions, the dilemmas of faith, the problem of evil. Well, if there is a God, then why is there evil in the world? If Christianity is so great, well, what about the Crusades? What about the Spanish Inquisition? All those things that they're going to get riddled with in college that begin to plant seeds of doubt and unbelief if they're not prepared and insulated going in before. And there are way too many tools for us as parents these days for children to go into that environment unprepared. There's way too much available at our fingertips. Okay, so throwing a lot at you there, let's begin to talk about walking this out. So that was biblical vision and casting that in the home. Every child's a gift and arrow, every parent a fletcher. Biblical saturation, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about some practicals here. He says in Deuteronomy 6, Verses 3 through 9. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses is talking. It's the book of Deuteronomy that he's speaking from here. The fifth book in Scripture. Deuteronomy means second command. Or in layman's terms, I'm going to tell you one more time. If that sounds familiar. And Moses is speaking in a very fatherly way to Israel to prepare them for what's coming in the promised land. And it ain't all milk and honey. There are giants. The territory is hostile and vociferously pagan. Hedonistic. It is a dark place. And they're supposed to go in and occupy it and take possession of it. And the ones that are leaving have been slaves, farmers, and brickmakers. 
They're not scholars, and Moses has to get them ready to go and do this. So he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of of your house and on your gates. Does that sound like biblical saturation to you? Okay. That is the principle that God is communicating. If you want children to turn out godly, if you want children to hit the mark and make an impact on the world for Christ, to do what God intended them to do, saturate your home biblically. Look around and find ways that you can constantly expose them to the scripture. And I want you to notice something there in that passage when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When he says that, he immediately follows it with, and the commandments that I'm giving you should be on your heart. It's almost as if he's saying, loving God wholly and learning his word go hand in hand. How can we expect to love God wholly if we don't know what he said and how he's defined love in Scripture? He gets to define it. We don't. If we look around at a lot of Christianity today, though, many people want to go by their own definition of what loving God looks like and what loving people looks like. I want to do it according to my own terms. I want to, I want to do what's right in my own eyes, Judges 17. Everybody's going around and everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes because there's no vision, because there's no attachment to the Scripture. If we want our children to love God fully, we've got to get them soaked and saturated in the word. And that means they need to be around it. That means that they need to be in it. And that needs to me- means it needs to be in them. One of the things that the Lord, I mentioned earlier about memory verses with my children That came out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Looking at Deuteronomy 6 and seeing what God was saying to Israel in order to go in and occupy and and fulfill their promise in the promised land, I recognized that direct correlation between the word that I knew and that I'd be able to impart to my children and the word that they knew and them fulfilling their calling. I made those connections early on, and so I was intentional. We had regular devotions. That was a non-negotiable in my house. These days, we're pretty lucky if we get a devotional once a week in a house. And I can tell you as a children's pastor, we're really lucky if we get one devotional from a parent in a house a week. We're really luckier if we get a father doing it. Because more often than not, it's mom. And God gave the charge to fathers. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He told them. Fathers, don't embitter your children. Don't discourage your children in Colossians 3 and verse 21. Raise them in that instruction. It falls with the fathers. When you look at the Proverbs, as you walk through, it's always from a fathering to my son. Attend to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. It's a father speaking to his son in the first seven Proverbs alone. It's the father, it's the father, it's the father. And then it adds this in the early Proverbs. Hear your father's instruction and do not forsake the law of your mother. 
Mom's in there, but dad's supposed to set the tone in the home. Dad's supposed to set the bar. And if mom is taking up the primary burden of schooling the children, there's going to be deficit. There's going to be gaps that have to be made up. Some of those deficits happen not by choice. Some of that happens by, by calling. We have brothers, men, that get called to the battlefield. We know that very, very well here in this church. And I will say to you, if you're a mom with a deployed husband, then you getting your child to church is twice as important. And getting them specifically involved with masculine relationships, biblical masculine relationships that can influence them, is all the more important. 72% of African-American children are growing up in a home without a father. More than 60% of Hispanic children are growing up in a home without a father. More than 48% of Asian children are growing up without a father, and more than 23% of white Caucasian children are growing up without a father. We have quite a gap that we as a church need to make up. And if we don't step forward as a church and meet that burden, it's not a vacuum. Society will fill it. Society will make sure that they get indoctrinated. Society will make sure that they have a core set of values and beliefs that match theirs. So biblical saturation. The, prin the second principle that I want to share is that loving God holy and teaching our children go hand in hand. We want to love God holy with all of our heart. And I said it's, connect it's, it's connected with learning his word. But the second principle is loving God holy and teaching our children. God literally saying to us in this passage, don't tell me how much you love me when you're not teaching your kid. If you're not taking an active role in raising your child in a biblical way, you're not loving that child according to Scripture, according to God's definition in Scripture. God wants, wants us to be doing that. Now, the cool thing about it is that you don't have to be a biblical scholar. There are things that you can learn, but God begins to make the process as he starts fleshing it out in this passage. He begins to go, okay, well, this, this may not be so bad. He says, you, you shall teach these things diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, he said, work me into the conversation throughout the day. Do it in the car. Do it at McDonald's. Do it on the way home from school. Do it before school. Talk, 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 talk. Talk about scripture. Talk about Jesus. Talk about worship. Play a worship song. There's so many different ways that we can constantly expose and be saturating our children. We have more technology. We have more tools at our fingertips than any generation that ever existed in the history of the world. Way, way, way many opportunities. And he says you can, it's as simple as talking. The great thing about, about kids, when you're teaching them, they grow with you. Kids don't come out of the womb knowing a whole lot. When you start as a parent, you don't know a whole lot either. It's almost like God understood the curve. <laughs> I'm going to give you time to get into this thing. I'm going to give you some room to grow and make mistakes, and we do. But... 
it can be very dwarfing. It can be very intimidating as a parent to look at the things outside and go, how am I ever going to get my kid ready? To maybe look at a preacher in the pulpit and go, I can never do that like he can. God didn't ask you to. He just said talk. He just said start talking. And it is amazing what happens in the course of conversation. The things that kids will say, the questions that will come, the things that in the process, because Holy Spirit is in that atmosphere, two or three, no matter where you are, he said, that he just brings to the surface and you have a chance to talk about. You have a chance to set something straight that happened at school. You have a chance to offer a teaching where a false teaching was given over here. So many different ways that we can do that. And then he says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they'll be as frontlets before your eyes. He's talking about phylacteries here, and he's talking about the, you know, the scripture boxes. When the Pharisees in the Old Testament, when the Pharisees got a hold of this, the Hasidim, the Hasidic Jews, they read this and they went, okay, God wants us to have the word near us at all times. Okay, we'll do that. And they made phylacteries, which is a box, and they packed them full of scripture, and then they fastened the boxes to their forehead. And they walked around with these boxes on their head. And people would ask him, what is that? Well, Deuteronomy 6, it's a frontlet before my eyes. God said to do that. And he said, bind it. Oh, what's that on your hand? Well, it's a phylactery because God said, bind the word of God to my hand. So they kind of got the idea. I think there was a, a little bit of difficulty if we look at the New Testament. And as far as getting out the application, Jesus had a few words to say to him about that. As a matter of fact, he told them, he said, look, this whole thing has become about show for you, and you're just making the boxes bigger so you can look really super spiritual to everybody. Okay, and by the way, you look like idiots. Okay. <laughs> but the intention of the phylactery and the phylactery picture is that we as parents are, are, are so saturating our children in the home that the kids are getting it in their head. And the kids are getting it on their hands, everything that they do. They're learning in the home to think biblically. They're learning in the home to not just hear the word, James 1.22, but to do the word, to apply it, and that there's blessing that follows it as they do it. The other thing that I taught my, my daughters to do was to be able to think critically. I indoctrinated them against groupthink and taught them to independently think and to search things for themselves, not to believe everything that's coming out of somebody's mouth or because they read it on the Internet. I taught them to study and show themselves approved, and both of them do to this day. It wasn't so long ago, Car Carlisa was in one of her college classes, and one of the professors, of course, went, on on a, went off on a famous rant. You know, the Bible is stupid, Jesus is dead, la, 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 la. and she began to, you know, text and relate, and number one, she's like, oh my gosh, dad, you should see what this guy's doing right now, it's just like, eh. <laughs> and then she began to relate, just in a, in a breathing moment, dad, I'm so glad that you taught us growing up, I'm so glad that I can sit here and pick this apart in my head. And then she opened her mouth and gave him an answer. <laughs> so, and that went really well, too. <laughs> so biblical saturation, this idea 
of trying to soak our, our kids in as much scripture as we possibly can. You do it with memory verses. You can do it in all sorts of creative ways. When kids are young, I started with my girls. I got them a little bitty beginner's Bible. And, you know, one that just has the little pictures and a little story. And then there's Jonah and this cute little fish and all that kind of stuff and so forth. And you go, well, that's not the word of God, brother. Okay, relax for a second. Bring it down, Charlie. Okay. I'm introducing them to the word of God, and I'm teaching them to begin to look to the book. And one of the things that we would do when we sat down, when it was devotional time, you know, first of all, when, you, when I said devotions, I built an atmosphere for that, that time with God in the home, a love of it. And when I said devotions, I can still remember my oldest going, yay, versus, mm. that's what you want your kids to do. And she'd come running and jump on the bed, and we sat on the bed together, and here we went. And the first thing we started with is putting the Bible down. Oh, we love to pat the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Oh, we love to pat the Bible. It's God's holy word. And she's two and three years old, and she's learning this song. And then we'd do a worship song together. We'd sing a worship song. Jesus loves little children, et cetera, et cetera. We'd do some song, and... and She's enjoying it so much. Dong, dong, dong. She's prompting me. I want another song. Let's, let's take worship, praise and worship a little longer this time. Let's spend a little more time in the presence, Dad. Okay? And we would sit there and we'd do, do some more songs. And finally, we'd get into the teaching of Scripture. And then we would begin to work a memory verse at the end. Some type of little pattern of instruction. Okay? Some type of reproducible model. Something that I can do day in and day out. Ain't going to kill me. Okay? I'm not trying to give them a seminar, okay? And believe, you know as well as I do, they let you know when you're taking too long. <laughs> it, but we can, we can talk ourselves out of the biblical instruction of our kids by trying to making, make it something it was never intended to be. It doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't. And you get to do it with kids, and you can continue to grow it and, and do things along the way as you grow with them. Okay? So biblical saturation. All right? The other thing that I want to cover with you is biblical discipline. Biblical discipline. And everybody said, yay. Biblical saturation is the, is the number one most neglected principle when it comes to spiritual parenting, biblical discipline is number two. Um, I've been a children's pastor twice now, okay? <laughs> one many years ago and one when I came here. Um, and the conversations never change. They're always fun. <sighs> pastor Duncan, I don't know what I am going to do with this kid. I'm going to kill him. You know what I'm talking about. You get at wit's end, and you don't, you know, I can't get her to behave. I can't get him to, to sit down and be still. He won't do that. And we joke about it all the time. We'll joke about it on Facebook and social media and other things like that and go, when I was a kid, we didn't have ADD. We cured it real fast. <laughs> when the paddle came out, there was no attention deficit at all. There, there's visual tracking. <laughs> Tears are coming, so I know that there's visual processing going on. And there's no talking. Strangely, a silence has fallen over the land. 
There is something to be said for what God tells us to apply, but what the world offers as a substitute. And what I am saying is that there has been too much of a substitute of something. You cannot medicate when you're, where you're failing to apply Scripture. Medication will not make up a gap if you're not obeying Scripture. That doesn't work. Medication is supposed to help with the things that are medical issues. But there are things that children have to be instructed and taught that they're not going to get by Prozac and otherwise. It's not going to happen. Biblical discipline, Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So we're back to this love thing again. God directly ties love to biblical discipline in the home. And he says, if you don't have biblical discipline with your kids, you're not loving them like I, like I love them. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, because Father, he does not fail to discipline. The Lord does discipline every son whom he loves and whom he receives, the proverb says. And a father who loves his children does the same, the proverb also goes on. We cannot love children truthfully, yet discipline them unbiblically. We cannot love children truthfully, yet discipline them unbiblically. The main thing that I have heard when I have talked to parents over and over the years, to frustrated parents who are at their wits' end, I can't get my child to do this, I can't get my child to do this, they, they, they're defiant, they say no, they run off, up, 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 up. Here's what I have, I have learned. The majority of the time, I am not dealing with a strong-willed child. I'm dealing with a weak-willed parent. The majority of the time, I'm not dealing with a strong-willed child, but a weak-willed parent. A parent who is more concerned about loving his or herself and how the child perceives them. You're my buddy. You're my friend. No, I'm your mother and you will listen to me or I will shave your head. <laughs> I'm your father. I brought you in this world, I will take you out of it. <laughs> Proverbs of Bill Cosby there. There are a number of Proverbs. Have you ever sat down as a parent and studied discipline in the Proverbs? It's a very, very interesting study. Two things will emerge when you start doing a, a, a study on discipline in the Proverbs. I want to pass on to you here. The first thing that emerges when you start looking at it in Scripture is that you, you and the first question you're going to ask as a parent, well, when is it appropriate to spank my child? Oh my gosh, he just said the S word in church. When is it appropriate to discipline my child? When is it appropriate to spank? And if you read the Proverbs, one word keeps popping up repetitively. Foolishness. 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 And a simple definition of the word is knowing what you should do and not doing it. Defiance. Disobedience. 
It's that simple. It really does come down to that. We discipline our children in the Proverbs for disobedience and rebellion. If a child knows the rule and breaks it, we discipline. If you give an instruction and your child doesn't do it, there's discipline. If you give an instruction and your child tells you, no, there's a special kind of discipline for that. Proverbs 10, 13, though, says, On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. A rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Hold on to that three-letter word, rod. Proverbs 14, 3. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Proverbs 22.15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far away. Proverbs 26.3, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and the rod for the back of fools. You hear the pattern? Foolishness. Understood disobedience. It's not that the child doesn't know. You don't spank a child who doesn't know. You don't spank a child when there has not been sufficient instruction to make the rule clear. We, we don't do that. Do not lay expectations on a child where you have not instructed. Children cannot learn rules unless they're taught. First Corinthians 13 and verse 11, when I was a child, I thought as a child. I understood as a child, I spoke as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. A child does not know. They must be instructed. But once sufficient instruction has been given, that is when it is time for discipline. And that's when God says, get out the rod. Now, I want you to notice something, the distinction that he made there in 26.3. A whip for the horse, a rod for the back of fools. I was raised in a home where a belt was the weapon of choice. Okay? Not a rod. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you where God is in the details. You cannot calculate the amount of force from a belt. You with me? A belt is nothing more than a small trebuchet, okay? The end of that belt is going much faster than the fulcrum point from which it is being wielded. If you use a rod, force can be measured consistently. That rod, the end of the rod, is not going to strike the child any harder than what is being applied at the end. That's not so with a belt. It's not so with a whip. It hits two and three times as fast. You also don't have as much control. With a rod, you can aim right there at that little buttock. Right there at the backside. With a whip, with a belt, you might hit somewhere else. You might hit a leg. You might hit a... I'm getting real practical. I'm getting all up in your business. And I am an equal opportunity offender, I assure you. But it can hit a back. It can hit a hand when a hand flies back there. Okay. But a rod hits the mark and the force can be measured. God understands even the, way, the, the manner in which we should apply the discipline. And he says, use a rod. He, does, he, he counsels against a whip. Just, a, just a, a very practical note there. So a rod versus a whip, but also applying the discipline 
when there is foolishness, okay? Listen to the, the next row of Proverbs that I'm going to throw at you here real quick because I'm going to give you a, a great promise. Proverbs 20 and verse 30. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. Let me read that again. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. Strokes are on the outside. So how is it they could cleanse the inside? Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far away. If folly's down in the heart, how does the physical affect the spiritual, the emotional, the inward life? How's that work? Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child if you strike him with a rod. He will not die. Might sound like it. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. God makes a specific promise when we discipline according to Scripture. And it is this, if you'll do the work that you're supposed to do on the outside, I'll take care of the work on the inside with my Holy Spirit. But if you're not willing to do the work on the outside, don't pray and ask me to do the work on the inside. That's a vain prayer. It is attached to a condition. We're in covenant with this. God says, I'll be a father, but you got to be a father too. And here's your part. And if you think yours is hard, try mine sometime. But God assures us that if we do, there will be a heart change. It might take time. Discipline might have to be steadily applied. But he does promise, Proverbs 13, 24, again, if you love your child, you're going to discipline them diligently. It can take a long time to put defiance out of a child. To break their will and teach them to bend to the will of their father and mother and hence the will of their heavenly father. It can take a long time to deal with a number of strongholds that can emerge in childhood and think about this. Have you ever thought about the direct attachment between biblical discipline, the outcome of a child, and God saying that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds? See, strongholds start when they're kids. Strongholds don't get there overnight. When applied according to Scripture, discipline... Physical chastisement of the child becomes a weapon of warfare against the devil's work in their life. Against a stronghold that has the potential to build if we leave the child to his or herself. And instead go, if you promise, I'm, honey, don't do that. I'm going to tell you for the 17th time now. There's a time to stop talking and there's a time to get busy. And no amount of reasoning will deal with defiance. God has a different plan and a different method that he, that he uses to deal with that. So 
three things there, and let me get ready to close here because it's, it's about that time. Um, I called my girls uh, last night um, before, having, uh, before wanting to have this talk, just our check-in, our weekly thing. But knowing that I was going to teach this teaching tonight, I wanted to, to ask them. Uh, and I let them know. I said, okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to teach tomorrow night on parenting. And I'm going to be talking about these principles and laid it out for both of them. And I said, so I want to ask you, I want to ask you all a couple of questions. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't tell them ahead of time. I didn't give them a chance. I wanted their off-the-cuff answers, their, their honest blink. And so I asked, asked them both, how much did your spiritual rearing and training at home growing up impact where you are now? And both of them, without fail and without hesitation, said, Dad, it was the world. Dad, Dad you have no idea. My youngest said, Dad, she said, Dad, I, I see what people just post every day on social media. And I think of what you taught us growing up. I think of the scriptures that you taught us. I think of you spanking my butt. I think on and on my youngest went. And she said, Dad, I'm like, these people that are posting about not spanking their kids on the Internet, these people are crazy. They're stupid. I am so going to spank my child. When, 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 when. <laughs> so they're talking about how, how that's applied. The oldest turned around and said, Dad, she said, oh, my gosh, Dad, the training that you gave us growing up is so important. Dad, I have a moral compass in a culture where there isn't one. I can die a happy man with a statement like that. She said, Dad, she said, the beliefs that I have that have held me fast when my other friends are, I'm, are making terrible choices. She said, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for what you imparted to us. I asked another question. I said, how much did your training and rearing impact you finding and moving into your calling? And again, both of them said, oh, my gosh, Dad. When they reached their teenage years, the junior and senior year of both of them, I put together a rite of passage for both of them. And over the course of that uh, final senior year, I had arranged for seven women that I knew and modeled some strong biblical virtue that I wanted to pass on to my kids. I had arranged an encounter weekend with all of those people. And I put together... A set of scriptures that I wanted to pass on to them, scriptures about inner beauty, 1 Peter chapter 3, and so on. And they would go and they would have these encounters with these women of God. And the women of God, you know, they would do a craft together. They would go and do lunch together and, and some other thing. And they caught, they caught one more time a value that was being passed on to them. And so when I asked them that question, how much did that impact you in moving into your calling... I had, I had also arranged for them not only to meet with people that were modeling biblical values, but people that were also in the profession that they wanted to move into. See, when Jewish kids were raised, when they have their bar mitzvah, the child of the command, when they have that, they not only get a spiritual grooming for that, they, the, the fathers have, have understood and worked with their kids from the time that they were young to help them determine what they're supposed to do in life what God has called them to do. And here in Western Christendom, we don't have a lot of that. 
we get the idea that we're supposed to teach our kids about God, something like that, but there's a huge gap between helping children find their calling and move into it. And both of my girls, again, to the person said, said Dad, I'm, I'm where I'm at because of the training that I got. We helped them make all of those connections. The next question I asked was, how much will your training and rearing affect your choice in life in marriage and parenting? And the little one had already answered part of that, you know. But the, the oldest spoke up, and, and she, was, you know, she was quiet for a moment. I could tell she was really thinking. And, and then Kadra said, she said, Dad, I'm going to find a husband like the dad I grew up with. That's the type of man I want. <laughs> Boom, shakalaka, nothing but net. I cannot stress to you enough, as a children's pastor, the gravity of the hour that we are in. And the great need that we have for parents, Christian parents, to step up and, and do the deal. I can't stress it enough to you. Nor can I stress, stress it enough to you that if you have kids and you're raising them and you're raising them after a godly sort, reach out to somebody next to you who doesn't have a dad or a mother. And bring them to church with you. And some of you do that every week, and I'm so grateful. Praise God for you. And those of you in that generation that has preceded us, I will urge you one more time. Find ways to connect with these kids. And I guarantee you, Pastor Matt will put you to work. He, he's, he, he, he's not going around, I have too much help. <laughs> Pastor Matt and our elders know that we as a church, we, we've, reached, we've reached a moment in our development, a moment in time for us as the body of Crossroads Church. And there is an amazing field ahead of us, a wide open promised land before us. The previous generations that have been at Crossroads have built amazing foundations and they have been steadily and consistently built on over time. You have a talented, anointed staff here. And they are devoted, they are passionate, and, and they are going to be right there with you. I urge you, and I charge you, as my last word to you, I charge you, as a brother, as a friend, as a pastor in the house of God, raise your children in the word of God. Train up your children in the way that they should go. And I promise you, because I have two daughters to show for it. When they are old, they will not depart from it. I bless you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you. I pray that he'll make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. I pray that he will lift up his countenance upon all of your homes. And he'll give you peace. In Jesus' name. Amen.